Let's pray. A great and glorious God, we give you thanks that you are a speaking God, that you spoke your words to us uh, that is in the scripture uh, so that we may come to know you. As the deer pants for flowing stream, may we, our hearts thirst and long for Christ our Lord, the eternal word who became flesh for us and for our salvation, uh, who teaches us in his word so that we may be convinced of the truth of God that we may be convicted of our sin, and that, even more so, that we may come to Christ for salvation and for comfort offered by him through the forgiveness of sins and transformation of life. So, O Lord, may we come to you uh, uh, attentively, uh, that we would hear your word. Uh, May the preaching of your word bring you glory and bring us comfort. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Once again, it's a great pleasure to be with you. Uh, your brothers and sisters down in Calvary, OBC at Ringos, greet you. Uh, this morning, we will look at uh, an episode, a fairly unsavory episode of David's life. Uh, turn with me to your Bible, to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find it on page 262. And now hear the reading of God's holy and infallible word. 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about a woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. 
In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city and he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men, and the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of of Jerubasheth, did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall, you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came to and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the, morn, when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our Lord God, we give you thanks for your word, and may we, uh, your word enlighten us, enlighten our minds, and enliven our, our lives, so that we may trust in your word, and we may be transformed by it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Certainly, we just read a very unsavory episode of David's life. Um, I invite you to come back tonight um, for the next chapter so that we can see how God, even though he was displeased with David, he will restore him by his grace. But for now, um, let's be aware that this is a really honest account of David who outwardly show himself to be a righteous king, but we saw how a little bit of sin in his heart actually became a great flame and engulfed him in a flame of fire. Well, years ago, my colleague and I, uh, we were having lunch, and I remember one of them said, I'm so glad that I left the church. They were talking about sin this and sin that is really depressing. So uh, I quip a little bit and said, well, it must be a good church because they preach truth and there are so few of them around nowadays. Well, things have been going downhill since then. It's more than 10 years ago. Uh, unbelievers and even many believers have lost sight of what sin is. We may talk about that as a mistake. Uh, more often than not, we think of weaknesses or things that are not nice. Even more so, people brush it off by saying, well, everybody does it, and nobody's perfect after all. And to ignore sin and its deadly consequences is like going about your day with your hands over your eyes. 
or you have heard the saying that in order to defeat an enemy, you must identify it and know it. And when you face an enemy and have no understanding of it and no will to fight it, you are going to lose. And sin and its consequence, death, is our greatest enemy. This morning we have a brief lesson on the doctrine of sin. We will see here sin is not just an abstract thing. It's not an academic discussion. It is something terrible. It is something evil. It is something that clings to the best of us and renders us helpless. Few are as great as David. The Bible tells us that he is a man after God's own heart. In this chapter, we will see how sin bubbles up in him, takes control of him, and eventually brings him down. And the main theme of our passage, this chapter, is that sin destroys us, and only God's intervention can save us. We'll look at this chapter in four points. Verses 1 to 5 describes David's sinful look. Verses 6 to 13 describes David's sinful schemes. Verses 14 to 25 describes David's sinful murder. And finally, verses 25 to 27 describes David's sinful fall. So first, David's sinful look. Back in chapter 7 of this book, God made a covenant with David that his son will reign God's kingdom forever. And afterward, David waged war successful wars against many of his enemies and his kingdoms more and more established. Our passage opens up with David in the capital city of Jerusalem um, while his trusted general, Joab, leads Israel to war. Why is David staying in Jerusalem while his uh, brave, valiant men fighting? Well, maybe he needs a break or maybe his army is growing stronger and he's not even needed for this campaign. So in a lazy afternoon, David walks up to the roof of his palace, overlooking the splendor of Jerusalem. It just so happens that he looks right into a home and sees a beautiful woman bathing. And verse 4 tells us that she's following the Mosaic law of ritual cleansing after her menstrual period. Now, out of the beauty of his kingdom, the many homes that he can see David's piercing eyes, lands and fixes upon a nondescript home and finds this exceedingly beautiful woman. This is not just one innocent look because David immediately asks about her and his servant tells him that she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah. Later in chapter 23, both Eliam and Uriah, they are named as the mighty men of David's. They are the brave men of the trusted men of David's inner circle. They are loyal men who devote their lives to serve the king. But quickly, glossing over these names of faithful servants, David fixes his heart on Bathsheba. He sends for her and he lays with her committing adultery against his close friends and comrades. And all of that began with a seemingly innocent look. But this look uncovers something that is not so innocent. That is David's heart. His covetous heart. 
What tempts David is not Bathsheba, but his own lust. And look at how the narrator describes David's action in rapid succession. He looks, he asks, he sends for her, he lays with her, and she's pregnant. We are led to see how quickly David's one sinful look leads to a rapid succession of sinful actions, unbridled actions, eventually resulting in adultery and an illegitimate child. And David's action, David's action mirrors how quickly Adam and Eve fell. We call in Genesis, Eve saw the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It was good, and she took, she ate, she gave to Adam, he ate, and it was all over. Mankind has fallen. But David is worse because he's not tempted by an outward evil. After all, beauty is God's good gift. With his heart yielding to his lust, David goes from a righteous king to a filthy sinner. Just by the one unbridled look, a look that unveils his sinful heart. And his sinful heart drags him quickly to a series of irreversible sinful acts. So let's pause a moment and let this be a warning for all of us. A seemingly one quick look or throwaway thought can quickly plunge us into something sinful beyond our control. And this is certainly a call for us to be very careful with our hearts and our thoughts. Nowadays, um, with cell phone, with internet so prevalent, pornography is not only a problem for men. Almost half of sexual addicts are women, and the voyeurs are of all ages, from preteens to retirees. One look, and you are hooked. Your family life, your jobs, your relationships, everything is adversely and sinfully affected. Why? It's just one look. It's just, it's just me looking at pictures or whatever. Well, because you add poison, sinful poison to your sinful heart. Another problem, again, in social media is how prevalent of lies and filthy back and forth entice people to score points against others. Indulging in online gamesmanship dulls our mind, numbs our hearts. It causes tribalism. It causes bad temper. It causes our pride to come to an unfettered uh, end. These things don't really satisfy. How can we? How can they? They're sinful things that drags drags us into a dirt, uh, filthy pool of more sins. So if you avail yourself to what is not helpful but hurtful. A little dabbling becomes a full-blown addiction. So you see that sin starts with a spark, and then it turns into a flame. Coming back to David, we see this. Normally, a husband is so happy, so elated, uh, when he hears his wife say these wonderful words, I am pregnant. But David's heart obviously drops He's probably saying to himself, oh no, what do I do now? But David, being shrewd, quickly puts his mind to work. This leads us to our second point, David's sinful schemes. Upon hearing baby news, David acts quickly to try 
to cover up his adultery. He recalls Uriah from the battle, uh, from the front line. In verse 8, David tells Uriah to go home and wash his feet, which is a Hebrew, a Jewish euphemism for fulfilling his marital duty. To have Uriah come home to his wife and spending intimate evenings with her is probably the best way to get him to think that Bathsheba is carrying his baby. But Uriah doesn't go home. Why not? For two reasons. First, those fighting a holy war was prohibited from marital union. This is to keep soldiers ritually pure, as God commanded in Deuteronomy 23. Evidently, Uriah believes that he is fighting not only for his king, but for God. Secondly, Uriah's fellow soldiers are fighting and they're sleeping in tents in the field. So in a sign of solidarity, Uriah sleeps at the king's door with the king's servants. So you see, Uriah shows himself to be a good and righteous man. David sleeps with a friend's wife and tries to weasel out of his guilt and responsibility. He has shown himself to be a bad and unrighteous man. So do we see the explicit contrast between these two men here? One man acts on godly principle out of concern for others. The other man on sinful principles and selfish principles and selfish and sinful concerns for the self. Now, David's scheme doesn't work, so he resorts to plan B by trying to get Uriah drunk and lay with his wife. Well, Uriah is drunk all right, but he still refuses to go home. Rather, he sleeps on a couch with David's other servants. So in desperation, David's go for a jaguar in plan C. But before we look at that, let us consider the evil schemes of David. Now, what is David's motivation? It is to cover up his adultery with Bathsheba and to keep his name good in front of man. David, obviously, is a smart man, but he uses his intellect to plot evil, an evil that he is sadly unaware of. You see how sin numbs one's conscience and corrupts one's mind. And even worse, have you noticed that God's name and his word are nowhere to be found so far in this chapter. And this whole episode, it's not that God is absent or silent, but it is a stark reminder that when David doesn't think after God's thought and live by God's word, the mighty king falls quickly and falls very hard. So what we, learn, what we may learn here at least is that when, you're, when you sin, it is very hard to reverse course. When you start on a wrong track, you go straight down the wrong path. Sin has a firm grip on you so that you cannot not sin. Your mind justifies your sinful action because your sinful heart tells you that that's the way to go. That's how you can save yourself or further your good name. You can't help it. Sin leads you like a blind man down to a pit, to a dead end. And speaking of a dead end, our third point is David's sinful murder. All of David's scheming amounts to nothing. He has no other choice but to end this quickly and decisively. After all, Bathsheba's belly is going to show very soon. 
And the Bible clearly tells us that the child is not Uriah's. And the final and deadly act of David is also his most wicked. He writes a letter to his general, Joab, asking him to send Uriah, not back home, but to the front line and withdraw from him so that he may be killed by Israel's enemy. Now, worst of all, verse 14 tells us that David sent this letter to Joab by the hand of, guess who? Uriah himself. Can you believe David makes Uriah carry his own death warrant? Now, doesn't that make you angry at David? This chosen king who has shown himself to be faithful to God and righteous in the eyes of man, one sinful look uncovers the spark of lust in his heart, which leads to a flame of deceit and schemes, and now it becomes a burning and murderous fire. So Uriah dies in battle. When Joab informs David of this, David pretends to console Joab by saying that casualty is simply a consequence of war. Don't be concerned about it. In truth, Uriah dies as an honorable man by the hands of a dishonorable king. Let me remind you again, God is not mentioned at all. David relies on his own guile to get himself out of trouble. He created, he doesn't know how deeply sinful his heart is. He's pursuing his own agenda for his own pleasure to gain his own fame. He doesn't know how much he needs God to intervene at every little step along the way. Think about it. David could have meditated on God's word. He could have prayed to God for strength to fight against the temptation and his own sinful thought and desire. He could have confessed his sin against Bathsheba or Uriah. He could have said to himself, Oh, be careful, little eyes, of what you see. Oh, be careful what little head, what you think, something like that. But his heart is so overwhelmed by wickedness and self-fulfillment that such, such that he's so blind to the light of God or the life of man. And this leads us to our last point. It is David's sinful fall. We just considered the unrighteous and sinful actions of David. But in the eyes of his people, Guess what? David remains a righteous and good king. Why? He takes Bathsheba as his wife. By outward appearance, David does a a compassionate and righteous thing to honor Uriah. How so? By taking the newly widow as his wife in order to support and comfort her, and even raising up the fatherless child in the king's house. As we reach the end of this sordid tale, David is probably more revered and respected by his people than ever. Israel see the king as mighty, as good, as kind. He seems to do everything right. But at the end of this chapter, we see that even everybody is unaware of David's sin. Even David can hide his sins so expertly. He cannot hide it from God. This chapter ends with God's judgment. But the thing 
that David has done displeased the Lord. The original Hebrew says that the thing that David has done was evil in God's eyes. Interestingly, similar wording is used in verse 25 by David himself, who tells Joab to not count the death of Uriah an evil thing before your eyes. Here, God looks at David's heart. He evaluates his thought and judges his actions. Yes, before man, even himself, David can masquerade himself as a good and righteous man. But before God, David is fully exposed as sinful, a fraud, a hypocrite, a lawbreaker, no good, unrighteous, dishonorable, and even despicable man. David has done evil before God. It is shocking how the king can fall so fast so, and so completely. So what do we learn here? We may want to take the easy road and just say to ourselves, don't be David. Well, it's easier to say this. It's easier to said than done. Do you think David sets out to do all these sinful things? Do you think that David deliberately chooses to sin against God? I don't think so. It's not the matter of our choosing to be righteous or to be sinful. The prophet Jeremiah correctly says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This passage tells us that we don't need to choose to think sinful thoughts. We do it naturally and quite easily and expertly. And when we let down our God by ignoring God's word, we do it constantly. If we don't abide by God's word, if we don't learn it well, if we don't meditate upon it, and if we don't make use of it, especially during temptation and appearance of sinful desires of our heart, we have no hope to stop sinning. In the light of temptation, God's word should be a big red stop sign in front of us at the very least. And our desire to glorify him rather than our own sinful flesh should cause us to pump the brake and pump it fast to prevent us from car crashing and shipwrecking our faith. To state it differently, if God and his word do not intervene in our lives at every moment, our sins will destroy us. So let me close by giving you some food for thought. First, the letter of James gives a great commentary of our passage. James says in chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when he has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. This is exactly what David does. But James also gives us this gracious promise from God in verse 12 by saying that blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So we may say that James gives us a glimpse of the gospel power given us through Christ. We can stand firm against trials and temptations, 
since we are preserved by God's word and spirit. And we are forewarned that every little sin can give birth to big and worse sin and to deadly consequences. Second, sin is a deadly mystery. Sin is often depicted um, as a great power outside of us. Think of how the Bible, such as Romans 6, describes sin as an evil taskmaster, reigning, lording, mastering over all men and women outside of grace. We are in our sinful nature. We, in our sinful nature, are compelled to serve it, reaping the corrupting consequence sin brings forth in our lives. But sin is also inside of us. We are responsible of our own sins, whether in thought, in words, or in actions. And even after Jesus has freed us from the bondage and control of sin, sin still dwells in us and all around us. And so we must be watchful over our hearts. We must learn the danger of falling back into a sinful pattern and li- uh, sinful thought and life pattern. David was alone when he did indulge in his sinful lust. Think about it. Having God's word and God's people surround you are very helpful as they help you to fight the battle of sin. As we don't fight it in our own strength or by ourselves, we fight it by the help of God and the help of his people. And we must also develop an increasingly hatred of our own sins. As the uh, Puritan John Owen says, if you don't kill sin, sin is going to kill you. There are no little sins that we may ignore because they chain themselves together to bring us down, just like what we saw in David. And third and finally, if sin brings down the best of us, then where is our hope? Well, tonight we are going to look at part two of this episode to see how God confronts David and restores him to grace. I encourage you to come out to our evening service to hear the conclusion of this episode or David's life. But for now, know that this passage is telling us the great evil of sin. It tempts and then controls us if we are not vigilant and let it take hold of our hearts. We must use all of God's word to combat it. Whenever a smidgen of sinful thought or desire creeps up from our own heart, we must cut him down by the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But ultimately, sin is too strong. It overwhelms us. It's too shrewd, and it outsmarts us. It is too alluring, and it makes us complicit. We, in ourselves, stand hopeless before it to do its bidding. But this passage also ends not with David's sin, but with God. He is not pleased with sin. He is not pleased with David. He regards his action evil. He's about to act, not to simply punish David, but out of mercy and grace. God is ready to take away David's sin and to prepare him to give birth to the ultimate righteous king, our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who can atone for our sin and one who can deliver us from the power of sin. He did that on the cross. Jesus alone is the only one who can purify 
our hearts and minds by his indwelling spirit to God and to keep us from evil on a daily basis. And we'll see Christ in a clearer light tonight in, in the next chapter. But for now, let us humbly acknowledge our helplessness before sin and let us be careful and be faithful to cling to God in Christ, our King and Savior, who alone can save us from sin's deadly peril. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your holy and infallible word. The fall of David reminds us of the deadliness of sin which lurks behind and all around us, seeking to draw us away from you and to destroy us. May your Holy Spirit bring us back to Christ our Lord and Redeemer. And may we find strength and grace to trust Christ, who alone has delivered and is delivering us from sin and of death. May his resurrection glory be in our hearts so that we may walk in a manner that is tr- according to your truth and glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.